Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Kaderna Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Kaderna. So today's interview is one that's near and dear to me in a sense, being an author. All right, as an author, I know how hard it can be to write a full book, produce a book, and then the hardest thing sometimes is actually introducing that to the universe and eventually selling copies. So I had the opportunity to sit down with Farrell Vernon, the co-founder and chief operating officer of Written Word Media, a tech-enabled platform connecting authors and readers. Farrell has a unique background with an MBA from Duke University, but he began his career working at tech companies that focused on democratizing music. Since 2009, Farrell has worked to make independent creatives successful. He spent six years at Reverb Nation, another software focused more on the band and music space, before leaving and deciding to form Written Word Media with his wife, Ricky Woolman. Written Word Media now has over a million readers checking in daily to find their next favorite book. In this conversation, we cover all things economics, e-commerce, building a business as an entrepreneur, and what it's like to actually be a self-published author and try and get your book to the bestseller list. So without further ado, here is Farrell Vernon. Is going to require work and time and sweat and toil. If money wasn't an issue, what would I be doing? Don't worry about it. You'll figure it out. Change is the only constant. The Kadena Podcast. Farrell, welcome to the show. Yeah, it's great. Uh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm happy that you're on here because as a fellow author, um, you know, I personally have gone through some of the ups and downs of trying to self-publish and now full disclosure, working with one of the bigger publishing houses in, in uh, McGraw-Hill. But how did this, you know, kind of how did this come about that you wanted to take some tech background um, into helping authors? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think it sort of started organically. I think some of you know what I've done with my career and what we've done with written word media has always been in my DNA. Um, my mother was an artist growing up, um, so like I saw you know beautiful things around the house and textiles and all this kind of stuff. So that was very much understanding you know color and what an artist goes through as part of my upbringing. My father was an entrepreneur, um, and so he ran a hotel business. So I, I really saw both of those. Uh, things come about. And so when I jumped and took the job at Reverb Nation, helping bands and musicians, it felt very natural. It wasn't intentional that I wanted to serve the independent creative. But as soon as I got in that world, you know, you, you fall in love with these people um, that are, it's, it's the little guys in the industry, they're writing music, they're writing books, they're inventing new ways for things. It, it's really cool. And so um, it's been a lot of fun and, and a real honor to serve them over the past you know, decade and a half. That's awesome. And now growing up, I feel like, you know, you, you talk with a lot of folks are either like the jocks or they're more into the arts. And, and it's, it's funny to see how people kind of evolve and, and what life brings you down the line. Um, is this something you always knew you wanted to do, like being music, being writing and things of that nature? Yeah, you know, uh, in retrospect, it looks very natural, but I'm not sure if you'd asked me when I was 15, you know, what, uh, <laughs> this is what I would tell you I'm doing. But I think, you know, what I did always see is watching my father run his own business. I, I always kind of saw that as a potential path, right? I was really fortunate to have that model at a very early age, right? Like anything is possible. Like if you work hard, you do these kind of things, like you can make this happen. And I saw it happen. And 
you know, as a little kid, I would go to the hotels and I would meet the people that worked there and, and it was cool. Um, and so I think I always kind of had that model and, and I really straddled that line between, you know, I was super interested in business and, and people and, you know, how you can build something valuable and sell it. Um, but I always have been artistic, you know, I, I draw, I, I love reading. I've always, you know, read specifically, you know, a lot of science fiction, my whole family did. So I've always sort of gone in the middle of those two paths. And, and you say like, you know, some people like the jocks and the artists. Well, I kind of feel like I was a little bit of both. Right. And, and I, and I really, I'm really a function of my upbringing. So, uh, where we are today serving writers feels like, uh, it's a really comfortable, uh, and fulfilling place to be. That's great. And, and so now it's, it's kind of like the merger, it seems of like tech business, which you just alluded to, but now working with all these different creatives, which, um, you know, to take a step back, can we kind of define a creative? Cause I know it's a term thrown around a lot and some people are like, well, what exactly does that mean? Um, how would you define like a quote unquote creative? Yeah. Um, and it might help for me to give a little context for like what, what my company, Ritmore Media, does and how we serve creatives. And so I'll, I'll give you that real quick and then I can, I can answer your question more directly. Um, so Ritmore Media exists to serve the author, the writer, the creative. Um, this is anybody who decides like, hey, I'm going to write a book. Uh, right now, we have a very effective membership platform that helps people sell more books once they're written. Um, it's, you know, the way it works is authors pay a very small fee to run a variety of different ads with us. Uh, and we have five different media properties uh, for readers and about a million readers across those five platforms. And so uh, as an author, you come to us and we can help you reach uh, a variety of those readers who are targeted just for whatever genre that you write in. Um, I think, you know, to define the creative a little, a little more sharply, I think, uh, I, th I think about it very broadly. So, you know, whether you're writing a business book, a cookbook, or a fantasy novel, those people are all creatives, right? Creating this work, figuring out how to tell story. Um, and I think the same was true of musicians, just with a different medium. Uh, with writers, obviously, the written word in all its different formats is the actual medium that they use to tell story. Um, but I would I would really define that pretty broadly. Anybody who's trying to tell a story through uh, through the written word, uh, I would define as a creative. Gotcha. So the the storytellers of the world. Yeah. And what I wanted to ask, kind of, of that that three pronged approach, I guess, that kind of creates this business of kind of tech, uh, entrepreneur, and then creative. For you personally, I mean, which which came first? It was was there one that that kind of dragged you into this, or kind of how did that unfold? Um, that's a great question. You know, what what came first? You know, the first business I started when I was fifteen was mowing lawns. Uh, me and a friend mowed lawns around the neighborhood. We had eleven customers, and you know, I thought that was awesome. Uh, and then, so you know, I could say the business part probably got me into it. Uh, mm -hmm. I went to business school. I met some really smart, really interesting people while I was there, started working at, at Reverb Nation, which was a really small startup at the time. Um, and, and I loved it. And so like, you know, the business side got me into it, but I think, you know, I, I don't think I would have stayed if it hadn't been for the creative aspect. I, I don't think it would have been as interesting as compelling. I wouldn't have like poured my heart and soul into these endeavors as much if mm -hmm. I'd gone into um, something more general tech, you know, finance tech or something like that. Not yeah. that those aren't really cool things, but for me, the function of like working with technology, working with engineering, getting stuff built that people actually use, 
um, and then being able to serve the creative class, you know, that was thrilling. That was really cool. Um, and so I think that's it's sort of business probably got me into it and, and creativity is probably what's kept me where I am. That's awesome. And with Reverb Nation, I know that was more kind of in the music space. Do you like, did you always want to get into writing? Like, are you like a huge reader or you more into like just kind of, you know, jamming out to music or like what, what caused you to go from kind of one aspect of creative to the other, the different. Yeah. Media? I think it's all just everything with entrepreneurship is a time and a place, right? Like I had this amazing experience there. Uh, music was really cool. I'm definitely more of a reader than a music person. So, you know, for me, uh, sitting with a book is, is probably better than going to a concert. <laughs> That's sort of more in line with who I am. Um, doesn't mean I didn't love it, but uh, I'd been there a long time. And really, you know, uh, Ricky and I had been talking about starting a business together for a long time. And, you know, what happened is while I was there, uh, her mother, my mother-in-law, wrote this book right? Which, you know, you've written a book, like it's super hard, right? Oh, yes. So at yeah. the end of the road, Portrait. you're like, you're like, I did it. You know, I, I got this book. I'm ready to sell it. And then what happens, um, which we call now publish and pray, which doesn't work. Uh, you publish it and nobody buys it. Right. And so we didn't know this at the time, but that's what happened. So we're like, how are we going to sell this thing? And so we set the price for free. Couldn't give it away. Right. So many free books out there. And so what we did is built this little website called Freebooksy, which is still one of our sort of marquee media properties today. And we put the book up there and we picked some other free books and kind of interspersed it. And we're like, hey, this is a cool way to do this. And then it kind of worked a little bit. And for me, it was kind of a pause. Like I didn't do a whole lot after that. And my wife was working on it. She was a, an independent consultant for um, e-commerce companies doing digital marketing. And so she would... Uh, experiment with this site free booksy on the side for her consulting clients and say like, Hey, what's working for me on free booksy might work for you. Right. She could experiment. This is the good old days when Facebook ads were dirt cheap. Um, and, and what happened is the audience for the site and the Facebook page started to grow. And then one day an author writes in and says, Hey, can, can I pay you to be on the site? And that's the kind of the light bulb moment where you're like, okay, this is a thing. And so yeah. she continued to run that side by side with her consulting business for a little while. And then uh, it kept growing. And then one day, you know, I'd been uh, where I was for about six, six and a half years, like a long time. I was starting to feel ready for a change. And uh, we looked at the business and we're like, you know, this is a real thing. Uh, authors, this could be a real business. And that's when I quit my job and we reincorporated as Rittenward Media and, and founded the company in earnest. Uh, and that's kind of how we got to where we are. Um, that's sort of like the, the short version of the origin story. Gotcha. No, I appreciate getting some of the backstory there. And I think one of the things maybe you can help me answer this is like, there's just so much information out there on the internet. And I know some, I think everybody and myself included, it's like, you can go there looking for something and then before you know it, you're just completely overwhelmed with, with data or research or whatever it is that's out there that you're getting bombarded with. So when you have a site like yours that, that can collect a lot of books and um, or authors, I should say, and I'm assuming it's maybe not the top tier, you know, if, if you have a, a Dan Brown or somebody's already selling millions of copies, they're kind of selling themselves. So when, when somebody goes there, like what, I guess how if you're not like a uh, like you know rating the books per se like like how does that happen how does somebody go there and say well this is a good book or that's a bad one 
do you have people that are actually reading and reviewing or how does all that work on the site? Yeah, so that's a good question. So um, the way the, the sort of mechanics of how it works is we do have people, they're not reading the whole book, but they're reviewing a handful of sort of proprietary criteria that we look at to ensure a book meets people's needs. Um, but part of the way we cut through that clutter that you just alluded to is genre and device. And that's something that we found to be incredibly effective, even though it's super simple. So one of the best predictors of whether or not somebody's going to like a book is what their favorite genre is. So for mm -hmm. example, if you like mystery books and I present you with a mystery book, there's a super high correlation that you're going to like that book. Sure. And if, once you start getting into sort of the niches of the genre, that continues to get better up to a point. And then when you're trying to say like, hey, really small niches uh, don't work as well. So what we've done is we've created a service where a reader identifies which genres they like and they identify how they read. So let's say you want to read mystery books and you read on your Kindle. Then we only send you books that are on, available on Kindle and are in the mystery genre. And uh, then if you have other genre choices, the email automatically builds. So you, as a reader, you get a super customized email that's just books that you, we know you're going to like. And within that consideration set, readers maybe not pick all of them or they pick some of them. Um, but that's how we narrow it down so that the reader experience, and most of this is done in their email. So it's, it's a technology that is uh, everywhere, right? Everybody's got it. It's super easy, super portable. Um, and the readers of the world react really well to it. Uh, and that's kind of how we curate right now. And I think one of the things that we're really curious about and always experimenting with is how can we do a better job at curation? Uh, and we, you know, we spend a lot of cycles figuring that out. Gotcha. And then with, you hear so much now about, you know, the pay to play, whether it be through Facebook or other social media platforms. Um, I guess, how do you, how do you get the real quality to shine when, you know, say you're going to do those emails or what have you, uh, you know, is it because, and the reason I'm asking this is like when I've put together a manuscript and when I go out to different publishing houses, almost every time the first question they ask is tell us about your platform. And it's like, they could care less about the book. Is it a good book, a bad book? What, yeah. What's the chapter? It's like, how many followers do you have? Where are you speaking? You know, they, they want to know all these things so that there's going to be a certain level of books sold before they even sign a contract. So with that, I mean, do you have, uh, I assume some people can pay, you know, perhaps a little bit more to get, you know, a premium spot in the email or something. What is it that can maybe drag like a good book that maybe didn't put a big budget into it, but does that book maybe have the potential to grab a lot of space on your website or your platform just by virtue of, of quality and that a lot of people are going to want to come read that book? Yeah, that's a great question, right? And I think you've identified on a couple of things that are going on in our industry. Mm -hmm. One, uh, which you identified is, you know, publishers basically want you to do a lot of their work for them before you can get there. Sure. And that, in my opinion, is unfortunate, but I think it is a good um, case to be made for going the independent route. Most of our customers are independently published. We also serve a lot of publishers and, and small publishers. Um, but, you know, the mechanics of being an independent author is it's harder, but you get to keep a lot more of the money. And if you're having to build your own platform anyway, even to get to a publisher, why not do it for yourself and, and sort of keep the rewards? Now, every author's path is different. And, I, you know, I don't ever say one's better than the other, even though some people out there will, it's different for everybody. 
Um, and then on the quality piece, you know, quality is very much in the eye of the beholder and we believe that. So I may like a certain kind of book and you may think something else is, is cool and we're both right. And I think that, you know, the things that trip up authors, honestly, is the cover. Um, that's the biggest thing because when you present uh, a couple of books in front of somebody, they absolutely judge it by the cover. They judge the quality, they judge the genre is the most important thing. So if your cover looks like it's a thriller novel, but it's actually a sweet romance story, uh, the reader's getting gypped, right? They're like, oh, that's not what I wanted. And yeah. so that when we see authors uh, sort of make mistakes, um, it's often with the cover. It's not spending enough time or enough money or enough thought on what that cover is, because when you think about it, you're on Amazon, if you're searching for a book or if you're on Apple Books or wherever you're searching, there's a list of these books and they're just thumbnails, right? Mm -hmm. They're images. It's essentially an ad for your story. And as an author, you've got to think about it that way. And I think in terms of like books that do really well on our platform um, within sort of equal billing genre, the cover is, and sort of name recognition of the author are the two things that, that really matter the most. Gotcha. And how many books would you say are on your platform? Uh, we have, you know, a million readers. We send most of them daily emails. So we transact uh, millions of books every year um, wow. e easily. So we do a lot of volume and, and that's, we're, we're doing the recommending over email. And then when the reader clicks, they're taken to the retailer platform and your Amazons or Google plays, that kind of stuff to actually get the book. Um, and that's, that, that model has worked really well for us because authors, uh, can build their following, they can build their reviews, uh, they can teach those algorithms about their book uh, using our service. And, and that helps them either get their first bit of traction or, or really put gas on the fire if they're already succeeding. Okay. And, and going, you mentioned the algorithm, you know, so is that some of your background or did you and your wife, do you kind of go out and hire like the techies that were able to kind of create this <laughs> thing that, that worked yeah. or like, I'm sure a lot of people that are thinking of getting into starting their own uh, kind of e-commerce business are wondering how that all works. Yes. Yeah, so my background definitely is in technology and building this stuff is what I do and what I love doing. So that, that, uh, that helps. Okay. Um, I think that there's a very big difference in um, when you talk about algorithms, the algorithms of Amazon and what we're trying to do is just understand it so that we can, our marketing product takes advantage of that on behalf of our authors, right? Mm -hmm. And that's pretty tricky and it requires some understanding of both marketing, creativity, and, and some pretty deep tech. Um, but I think where we've seen huge growth in our business is every time we've invested in that technology um, to scale, right? Like sending an email to a few people about a few books is actually not that difficult. But, you know, sending millions of people books every single day on time without ever failing uh, takes a lot of work. And so that's what we do really well. And our team um, does an amazing job, our operations team, in terms of preparing the books every morning. They're up early. They're rocking through, you know, a 70-point checklist to make sure everything's spelled right, in the right genre, ready to go. Um, and, you know, we're, we're sort of a, a real on-time organized shop. And, and I attribute that really to the hard work and dedication of the people on our team. That's awesome. And I think we're going to have a lot of folks that are listening to this that might be aspiring authors. And then we're going yeah. to have a lot of just kind of our usual crowd that 
um, just loves business and, and how different businesses come to be. So I think the first question I have is you mentioned you have over a million readers. So how do you, how did you and your wife kind of go from this idea of, of helping your mother-in-law, you know, expose her book to the world to now a million people are coming in regularly to visit your site? You know, can you give us an idea of kind of how that grew? Was it just one big bam yeah. or, or was it a very slow kind of gradual growth? Uh, it's definitely not one big bam. Okay. <laughs> I think there's no like one event. I think a lot of entrepreneurship is a dedication to, to the grind, right? And a dedication to process. And we, we are really good and really focused on that. And so every month we spend money advertising, getting new readers, right? And we have a ton of metrics that we look at to make sure that that machine is working and that we're bringing new audience in and anybody who's, you know, maybe taking a pause from book recommendations for a while that we're replacing them with new, new authors. So uh, we spend a lot of money, hard cash, uh, running ads to, to build that list. And we also do a ton of partnerships and interesting things to bring people in. Um, and then we have a lot of process. And so there's, there's some really smart people and some really interesting processes that we have behind the scenes that we look at um, those numbers and how that system's working. And so if we look at, you know, a given week and we say, hey, we didn't, we didn't get as many readers into the system as we'd like, um, then like alarm bells go off, right? And we, we change what we're doing, we work at it. Um, and so it really is, and, and, you know, I'm talking about it like we figured it out all right away. I mean, it's been trial and error. Uh, like any like any entrepreneurial endeavor, there's mistakes made along the way. And sure. we made a couple, but mostly because we've really seen it as a system, as a something we're never going to turn off. It's never done. It's never over. We're a media company. So audience building is something that we spend a lot of time and a lot of money on. And that's always going to be the case. Mm -hmm. And I think it's that commitment to process um, that's made us successful. Um, and you know, my wife, uh, when she was doing this, she has a very natural talent for this, which is also, I think, um, has helped us a ton. And so you need somebody who, who likes it, right. Kind of likes data, kind of likes the creative, like, what, what can I say to a reader to get them to sign up? Like, what would be interesting to them? Um, and so for anybody who's trying to sort of replicate that, I would say, you know, start small, you do have to spend money. So you need to allocate budget yeah. and, and you have to, the iteration cycles, you have to make them short, days, weeks, so that you can course correct as you make mistakes. Yeah. And where did you start? I think a lot of people, they start a small business. They're thinking of, you know, Google ads, Facebook, and Amazon, mm -hmm. that those are like the three kings of the jungle. Um, is that right where you went? Or was there anything else kind of unique that you found working? Yeah. So the short answer is yes. We, those channels you just mentioned are good places to start. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and it really depends on what kind of business you're running. So, um, you know, if you are um, like, say, my brother's law is a locksmith. Right. So if you're of a locksmith, like Google ads is super important because people are searching for like, I'm locked out of my car. Right. Mm -hmm. So yes. Facebook ads, maybe not as not as uh, important for us. Like when people are reading and discussing like Facebook's a great channel. Right. So so we spend a lot of time on Facebook, um, but you also have to be dedicated to whatever's new and exploring it. Right. Like did YouTube ads work? Um, you know, is TikTok the right place? Instagram ads, all these things. Um, and then uh, turning off the stuff that doesn't work. Right. Mm -hmm. And so for us, we've had a lot of channels where we've been like, oh, this this is cool. This works. And then some things that don't. And you have to be disciplined about turning off the stuff that doesn't even if it's like fun and cool and new and shiny. Um, and we've been pretty disciplined about that over the years. 
And are you able to see that like uh, immediate return on, you know, ad expenditures or is it like in your realm, is it like kind of, you have an outlay on, on one of those platforms and then you can't really track if it's working or not for a month or a quarter. Like, I think that's a lot of the fear small business owners have is like, all right, I'm being pitched all these different advertising campaigns, but yeah. no one can say, well, we're going to guarantee you're going to get X return out of our campaign. And I know that's a lot of times the hesitation for a small business owner to take that jump. Yeah. And that's, I empathize very much with that fear, right? Like you're outlaying cash. If you're starting a small business, you probably don't have much of it. We were the same, right? Our budgets used to be really small. They're much bigger now. And like, so like, I totally get that. I think the thing I would say is as an entrepreneur who's running ads, like it's your job to figure out if they're effective or not. Right? It's not the platform's job to promise you. If you can get a promise, great, but most of them won't do that to your point. And so you've got to figure out how am I going to understand if this can be effective. And the great thing about modern internet technologies is they're super trackable. Right. And so we track, you know, we track stuff really, really tightly and we know if our stuff's working or not. And that is um, that's hard to do, it's hard to get the tooling right, like the instrumentation. But in the early days, it wasn't as sophisticated as we are now. It was just, you know looking at a spreadsheet and running some reports and trying to figure it out. And um, if you're in like the early stages, that might be enough. Um, but it is, you know, I do feel like as an entrepreneur, it's your job to figure that out. Yeah, definitely. And, and kind of to take a step even further, kind of behind the scene of, of your company. So at that stage where you know that you're starting and you've got to invest capital, you know, in advertising in particular, how did you go about doing that? Did you have financing partnerships? Were you giving up any equity in the company, anything like that? Yeah, that's a great question. We did it, you know, a certain way. So I'll tell you, I think about this like cooking a chili, right? Like everybody cooks their chili a little different way. And so yeah. I'll give you my recipe, but you can cook it differently, right? Sure. <laughs> and so um, we continued to run my wife's consulting business. Really, she ran it while we were growing Written Word Media. And so that business uh, paid the bills uh, for us personally and allowed us to basically reinvest 100% of everything we made on written word media back into the business. Um, and that was scary. <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you, right? Like uh, reward doesn't come without risk. Um, you know, I'd had this great benefits and salary for a number of years and we just all of a sudden didn't have that. Um, so we were relying on the consulting business to get us through that sort of initial year, year and a half period. Um, and it was really hard, but, you know, in retrospect, we didn't have to borrow any money. We didn't have to give up any equity. Like you said, we didn't have to go out and spend time raising money. We spent time earning money uh, to fund the business. Um, but I had sort of spent, you know, probably 90, 95% of my time on the Ripmore Media business. My wife was still splitting her time with the consulting, which we needed to pay the bills. Um, so, you know, if, if there's an entrepreneur out there cooking their own chili, uh, that's one way to do it is to take some consulting clients to help fund what you're doing. Uh, it's not for everybody, but, uh, you know, hard work nights and weekends, it's one way to keep all the, all the equity for yourself. Yeah. And I think that's what you're seeing more of kind of in the gig economy is yeah. people taking baby steps into that rather than just <laughs> kind of cutting the cord and diving in head first, you know, kind of sink or swim. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there are a lot of different ways to kind of skin the cat there. And so as you started to scale your business, I assume you mentioned your operations team and thing, you know, that you started to take on employees. Yeah. Uh, 
what was that like going from, you know, Reverb Nation, which grew, you know, pretty quickly? Um, I guess you were an employee of sorts there, or yeah. maybe at the executive level, but now you're the guy, like you own the company. Can you tell us a little bit about that, of the kind of hiring, firing, and now actually motivating people underneath you? Yeah, so that is... Um really interesting. So I think that the first thing is when you move from being sort of like a key employee, but, but an employee um, to an owner, um, the thing about the, being an owner of a business is no matter what happens, that's bad. It's your fault. <laughs> right? So like if one of the people that works for you makes a mistake, then, you know, you didn't hire the right person. You didn't train them correctly. You didn't provide them the coaching they need. You maybe not incentivizing them. Like all these things, it's all you, right? Yeah. Uh, something happens in the industry, you didn't prepare for it, right? Like, so, so there's really nothing that's not your fault. And so that change of, you know, it's not that you're necessarily working harder. Uh, a lot of cases you are, and I definitely was, but that's actually fairly temporary. It, but the responsibility level that you have is way bigger, right? These are, this is people's salaries, it's their job, it's their families. And like, it's your job to protect it, right? And to grow the business and, and to make sure that everybody has what they need. Um, and that's, uh, that's a big responsibility. And, you know, while it is a little scary, it's also a big honor, right? That people trust you to, to do that. And so uh, I take it pretty seriously. And I think, uh, you know, hopefully it shows with the way we run the business and we're at 14 people now, and um, we work really hard to make sure that those people are, um, we say, you know, uh, right person, right seat, that they're in the right job and they're contributing to the best of their ability and that they're getting what they need. Um, and, you know, in terms of like motivating people, um, that is something that, you know, earlier in my career, maybe I wasn't as interested in, but it's become, you know, really a fascination and a focus point for me because uh, I think anybody listening who's tried to do this knows you can't do it yourself. Yeah. Right. And if you try to do it yourself, it's overwhelming or you're going to run into brick wall after brick wall after brick wall. And so bringing smart people uh, into your world, letting them help you is really cool and allows you to grow really a lot faster and do more interesting things. And it's fun. Um, but the trick there is, is making sure you motivate people, right? Right. And making sure that the job they have is interesting and exciting um, and fulfilling and that, you know, the projects that we're taking on as a company are both profitable and good, but also interesting to the people that work there. Um, and you have to really be thoughtful about your organizational structure. Um, and even with just 14 people, most people would think, oh, you don't have to worry about like your org chart and all this stuff. But we spent a ton of time thinking about it. Like who's, who is actually the right place and how can we best make use of people's talents to help pull the, the company forward? Uh, and I think when you get that, that puzzle right, and we made, we made some plenty of mistakes before, but when you get that puzzle right, kind of where we are now, things really start to cook and it's really exciting. Um, and so, you know, we're at 14 now, hopefully we'll, we'll be bigger next time you and I talk, but, um, yep. that's kind of where we are. And, you know, there's so much insight that you have here. Cause I do go back to that, that feeling I'm getting that it's kind of like a merger of these different aspects of, of tech, of business, of creative, like all the kind of big things that sometimes people identify. It's like, you roll them into this nice, neat, you know, small company that you start from the ground up. That's now, you know, growing very quickly, it sounds. <clears throat> so with that in mind, like these people that you're hiring, is there something you look for um, first and foremost, whether it's an area of expertise, um, a certain pedigree of where they went to school or where they worked previously, 
or just a raw passion for reading and and just a commitment to building you know the publishing space um is there like one thing that you're like you've got to have this or you're probably not going to fit with written word um yeah so it's not one thing it's a couple of things um and it's mostly not the things that you just mentioned which i think is actually something that i have changed my track on over the last 10 years right i used to always look for like who can do who's got the skill right who's got who, who can do who's the subject matter expert in this thing can they do the the task um and to a certain extent you do have to do that right but i definitely don't look for pedigree <laughs> you know okay. almost almost the opposite i look at people's backgrounds very much but i don't consider one better than the other they're all sort of you know to use the chili and alley uh, interesting ingredients and in what, you know, makes a person. Um, but values is the answer. So we started hiring, we use EOS, which is the entrepreneur operating system, which, um, we can talk more about, but like if anybody out there is running a, you know, 10 person business and they're not using it, I'd highly recommend you take a look. But one of the big changes that we made when we started doing that was values-based hiring. And what that means is instead of saying like, oh, this person can write copy, right? You say like, do they believe what I believe? And then what flows from that is culture. So I'll give you an example. Our number one core value is support the author. That's it, right? So if you don't feel like it's going to be cool and fun to serve authors, the people that write books, it's going to be tough, right? You're not going to love the job. And, and we've had people come that have been super smart, like amazing people, but they just weren't that into the whole writing author piece. And then they kind of move on. And so now what we do we have a set of interview questions that are all based on our values. And so we say like, hey, does this person want to support the author? Is this person going to be a good teammate? Teamwork is super important to what we do. Uh, is this person detail-oriented? You know, we run a media company. We're serving authors. Like quite literally, you know, uh, I's need to be dotted. Things need to be spelled right. And if that level of detail is like overwhelming to you or you're like, I don't really want to deal with that, like terrible fit. <laughs> and so... And, but like once those people have the values, you can teach them skills. And, yeah. and we've got, we become really good at teaching people skills. We have processes to teach them. We use external training. Uh, Ricky and I as founders do a lot of coaching and training internally with people. And what you found is whether somebody, you know, went to college, didn't go to college, is a photographer or whatever, doesn't matter. What matters is they believe what I believe and that they want to work. And if we find those things, which we've been very lucky to be able to find with our current team, um, things really start to work well. And so I would say that that's really the biggest thing is, is hiring based on values and what you believe. And if somebody believes what you believe, uh, you can teach them how to do X, Y, and Z. That's awesome. And the space that you're in right now, what is it like competition wise? You know, I know when I wrote my first book, which was uh, Millennial Millionaire, came out in 2016. I, I, it was, you know, the whole process. I kind of went working with some literary agents. Uh, they wanted to kind of hijack the book and like change everything. And it was it was not the best experience. Um, and that's when I was like, you know what, I'm going to kind of abandon trying to go for like the big publishers. And I just wanted to really make it my own baby. And so I used CreateSpace through Amazon. Yeah. And then, or, and then kind of like you said, the, the publish and pray, that was really me because I had no idea once I wrote that book of what to do. And it was kind of like learning after the fact. And it's like the sales came a little bit later than I thought they would have because I had to learn how do you actually like generate the buzz. Um, so what I was going to ask is now with, you know, with CreateSpace, or I think it's KDP now and, and Amazon having all that, 
in, in self-publishing becoming so much more of a thing, are there other versions of you out there and, and how are you dealing kind of with the marketplace for what you guys do? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I think for what we do, there's not, all, there, there's certainly other people that do similar things, right? That, that you can go and you can buy an ad that gets delivered by email to a targeted reader. Um, most of them are a lot smaller than us. Um, and so they reach less people. Uh, there's, you know, one player in space that's way bigger. And, uh, but that they also, um, I'll use the analogy like colleges, right? So like that's Harvard. They say no to, you know, 99% of the people. And, and we say yes to everybody pretty much. Um, and so our product works for the emerging author who's just starting or the accomplished author who's already got a catalog and already got a following. And so, you know, in the market, we're really the only player that has a membership platform that an author can come to where they can get discounts on our products, discounts on partner services. They get you know, early access to some of our tools and some of our uh, ad inventory. Um, so there isn't anybody who really does that as well as we do. And, and our focus on customer service, you know, again, back to our value of support the author is really incredible. And our customer service team does you know, just a 10 out of 10 job. I mean, they're amazing. And we get back to like all of our authors. We try to make their lives as easy as possible. Uh, no matter what they ask us, you know, we handle it. We're not snippy. You know, we're not like, we don't have like a two day turn time to get back to people. Um, and so we really focus on supporting the author. And so in terms of like, you know, other people that are doing exactly that, there's not, there's not a ton out there. Okay. Okay. Interesting. And kind of with that in mind, I mean, there's not a ton out there and, and you're doing very well in this space. And where I kind of wanted to tie all of this together is going back to you running this business. Um, do you do you ever fear, because I've gotten this from other guests on the show, that as you, you really kind of groom and train some of these key employees that have the right values, they have the right stuff, that they're going to see kind of gaps or openings out in the industry and try and replicate or come out with a new twist on your product? Um, and how do you maybe retain those people so that they don't, in a very tight labor market, say, hey, I've got some leverage here. Maybe I can go uh, try and do what you did. Yeah, um, I don't worry about that. And I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, you know, we work really hard on like feedback loops and feedback mechanisms. And so we talk to people often, right? There's, there's never a point where any of my employees or key employees or anybody really, it's been more than a week or two before they've seen me, right? Like usually it's every day. Um, and we try to build a culture of innovation. And so I think what you want to do is if somebody has that idea, like, hey, we could replicate this. I want them to do it with me, right? I want them to do it here. And I'm like, hey, here's a little rope. Here's a little money. Here's a little support. Like, let's go get this done. That's exciting, right? And so instead of competing with us, what we're trying to build is a platform for authors, but also the people that work here to do cool things and innovative things. We're working on some stuff right now that's like kind of outside the, the realms of, of what we hired these people to do, but they find it exciting and we're like, let's, great, let's do this. Um, so I don't worry about that because, you know, when it's time for somebody to move on, it's time for somebody to move on. And we, uh, we handle that real gracefully. We actually have a program called our next chapter program where if somebody's open and honest about the fact that they want to move on, uh, we let them and we help them, right? I'll, I'll do some coaching. Rick will do some coaching. We open our Rolodex. We help people find another job that fits them. Um, and that's been really successful for us. So nobody that ever comes to written more media feels stuck, right? They're like, hey, either 
I'm going to love the job, or I'm going to want to do something different and Farrell's going to support me, or I'm going to need to move on and they're going to support me with the next chapter program. And so it's kind of like taking all the risk out of working for us. And so I don't worry about people going on to other things. Of course they are. It's going to be great. And we support them. And we have this whole group of alumni of people that have gone on from written word media that we still keep in touch with that are amazing people doing cool things. Um, and I, you know, I really believe, you know, karma maybe is a strong word, but like, you know, what you put out there does come back to you. And uh, if you do right by the people that work for you and that you work with, um, you're going to end up being successful. Maybe I take it on faith, but uh, I think it's, uh, I think it's really important. No, I'm right there with you. And I think that's awesome that you actually have a program, the next chapter that, you know, it, it's, uh, I don't know that I've seen that before. You know, it's, I think it's hard for a company to, to not feel a little bit bitter if they have somebody that they like, that's a good worker that does want to move on. Um, you know, you may find people within that company that say, you know, anytime you need me, call me, but usually the company as a whole is kind of like, Hey, you, you want to get out of here, get out of here. You know? So it's, yeah, that's really and, cool that you do that. Yeah. And it's, I would say it's been borderline transformative that program because turnover is so painful. And so the way the program works, somebody says like, raise their hand. They say, Hey, I'm, you know, this isn't doing it for me here. And there's a number of reasons why a job doesn't work for people. And a lot of them are not related to you or me as the business owner at all. It's like what's going on in their life. And you just got to be understanding about that. Um, and then we give them a long runtime. So we say, hey, like, do you need six weeks, do you need eight weeks to find a new job? Like, how can we help you find a new job? And then, so what that does, two-sided, one, like there's no underhanded secret interviewing stuff, right? Because somebody's like, hey, I've got an interview with another company on Monday. Can we do the meeting another time? I'm like, great, no problem. And then uh, it also gives us as a company longer lead time to replace that position. Mm -hmm. So it's really win-win. So like the turnover, yeah, it stinks to lose a great person, but you know, you have two months to backfill that position. That's usually enough. And sometimes it's more. Um, and it also builds this relationship of transition. that's much more supportive on two sides than it is at most places where it's like very contentious and awkward and weird. Yeah. And so we have these people going through the program. It's not weird. We talk about it openly. Everybody sees that. So they know it's always an option for them. Uh, and I think, you know, it's been really helpful in making both turnover less painful for us and, you know, cool side benefits with building this alumni of people that have a super positive experience with written word media from the day they started till the day they leave. That's very cool. And kind of real quick in that, that same vein. So are you a remote guy or do you want the whole team, you know, boots in the office, kind of like, you know, shaking hands yeah. to work together? You know, I think as a leader, we went fully remote during the pandemic. Um, so I was, you know, when the first vaccines came out, I went to our office that we used to have um, with measuring tape, just trying to figure out how to get everybody's desk in because we hired a bunch of people and grown a bunch during the pandemic. Um, and then we kind of surveyed everybody and we're like, you know, do you want to go back one day a week? Do you want to go back full time? And like the overwhelming response was like, I don't want to go back. <laughs> um, and so, you know, as a business, you have some options, right? You're just, you're just picking which problems you wanna solve. And so I don't think remote's better than in-person or in-person's better or hybrid's better. Like, it, I think that's sort of a silly argument to have. The, the argument is like, which set of problems do you prefer, right? If you're in office, then the problems you're preferring is you gotta get people to commute and you can only hire people that can drive to your office. That's it, right? Those are problems. And you just, yeah. if you like solving those, great. Then that's the right solution. For me, I like being able to hire people in different places. I like the flexibility that remote work gives us as a company. Um, we're not manufacturing anything, so we have that option. Um, and we've had a bunch of really cool benefits from going remote. 
you know, we have some people, you know, they're four hours away, two hours away that if we were working in office, they wouldn't be able to, to work for us. Um, and we had, we had one employee who, who literally moved, you know, hours away. And, you know, in the old world, um, she would have had to quit. Right. But now you have a great person who works for you. who's an amazing, you know, worker who knows your values and like you get to keep them when they are going through a life transition. And I think that's really been a cool thing about going remote. Um, so I don't, I'm not dogmatic about it. You know, I think there's, there's some magic to being in person, no doubt. And we try to get the whole team together once a quarter in person, do something fun, have a meeting and kind of see people. Um, so I guess that's kind of hybrid, but um, I like the model that we have, but I don't have like, uh, like, oh, that one's bad. This is wrong. Like, I think they're all right. It just matters, you know, which set of problems you want to solve. Yeah. Yeah. And you go with what works ultimately. So exactly. That's awesome. And now one of the things I wanted to ask you now, going back to really kind of the business. Um, so we're in an era, it seems like everything is a membership or a subscription, you know, Netflix, Disney plus, I mean, that the list goes on and on. It's like, we're just living in these subscriptions that we all adhere to. Now I understand that your business model has gone in that direction, right? To, to a membership yeah. platform. Can you tell us a little bit about that or what, uh, what prompted that or how the results have been? Yeah, so it's very early. We, we launched it a few weeks ago. Okay. Uh, early, early results have been positive. You know, we have people signing up. We have people excited about it. Um, in, the reason why we moved there is really because, you know, our product, you know, a year ago was this incredibly effective ad product, but it was and still is pretty transactional, right? Like you come to us, you buy it, it works, and then you go away. <laughs> and, um, that is a great way to create value sort of on a very thin sliver, but our core value is support the author, right? And authors need more than just an email marketing service that works really well. And so the moving to membership for us was a way to start layering on value above and beyond just what that core product is. And right now the membership includes, um, you know, some discounts on our services some discounts on partner services uh, some interesting access to ad inventory that, that is exclusive. Um, but it's really sort of step zero for us, right? And step one is adding more things to that membership. And we're really excited to do that because it builds a much closer relationship with our core customer, who is the, the, the author, the writer, and um, allows us to continue to add value to their service without having to charge for it every time we do it. So we can invest a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of people into building something cool. And then we can put it into membership and we don't always have to sell it uh, separately. Sometimes obviously you have to running a business, but it gives us a place to sort of put value for the author above and beyond what we've been able to offer in the past. Uh, and I'm super excited about it. Um, in conjunction with that, we also reworked how everything looks. So, you know, our author dashboard looks really cool now and it's got all sorts of fun stuff. And, um, you know, we're, we're pretty optimistic about the future with this model. That's cool. And is there anything on the opposing side of the model for the, you know, the readers that, um, do they ever pay anything or is there any subscription opportunity to go find new content or teasers or previews or something that could, that is that kind of in the works or has that been a thought? It's definitely been a thought, you know, but when you, when you zoom out and look at like, again, you know, what, why we exist, which is supporting the creators and the writers, right? The, the content creators, um, charging readers doesn't help them, 
right? They, we want the biggest audience possible. And, you know, one of the best ways to do that is to make it free. And so it's totally free for readers and, and probably will be for quite some time. Uh, if there was ever a way we could figure out sort of a, a paid product for readers where we could, you know, clue in the authors on some of that um, benefit, that would be something interesting that we would think about. But, you know, back to values, you've always got to be keeping those values in line. And that, that guides everything we do. And right now, the best way to support the author is to make it free for the reader. Uh, so that's what we do. And are there any transactions on the site as far as the readers buying the book through you? Are you a, a channel for distribution or do they then go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble to get their book? Yeah, right now they go to Amazon, Barnes and Noble to buy it, like okay. straight up. Um, there is a movement in the industry where authors are starting to explore selling more directly, you know, up really until this year, the or really until the pandemic, that technology was out of the reach of your average independent author. But you know, with the enhancements in e-commerce, uh, which I attribute a lot to the pandemic, you know, shoppers are used to multiple platforms buying from stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, it's become a little more palatable for authors. And, you know, the goal is pretty simple for an author. If they can keep more of the revenue and not have to pay a gatekeeper like Amazon or Apple, that's great. And so we're, we're definitely starting to think about how we can support that uh, moving forward because I think authors are starting to look at it more. Um, it's still pretty small, the, the amount of authors who, who are willing to do that and have traction to do it. So we're kind of watching to see how that goes, but uh, it's definitely something we got our eye on. Okay, very interesting. And maybe to kind of wrap all of this up, I know a lot of what you service, a lot of what these readers are reading are self-published or independently published. What do you see as far as the future of the industry uh, for all of the self-publishing and independent publishing? Yeah, I think um, something I love to think about uh, and, you know, we, we get to think about because we're in the industry and we're talking to these authors. Um, I think one of the things you're seeing is really a serialization of content, right? And this is happening with platforms like uh, Wattpad and Amazon has one called Vela. Um, but you're seeing the rise of like serialized chunks of story. And this is, you see this happen with TV, right? So like a story like Game of Thrones, this huge, broad, like all encompassing story arc that couldn't really have been told, you know, even 10 years ago um, is now being told in a manner where like, you know, chunks of content are coming out and you're telling this super long, interesting story. So you're seeing that happen in, in TV and movies and video content, and you're seeing it happen in books too. And authors, you know, have been early adopters of this. They've written series books, right? Book one, book two, book three. Um, but I think you're seeing the content get even shorter, right? So it goes from like book one to like episode one, which is, you know, maybe shorter a chapter at a time. And I think that combined with the prevalence of the phone, right? Everybody's got this phone with this ultra high resolution screen in their pocket. Um, and a lot of people are like, oh, nobody reads on their phone, but like everybody reads on their phone. Um, we've done surveys, it's north of 70, 80% of people have read an entire full length book on their phone. And so, no. And so anybody who thinks that like, oh, you know, scoffs at that is incorrect based on my data. And so, you know, serialization of content, reading on your primary digital device instead of carrying around a Kindle in your bag as well. Um, I, I really do believe that's the future. Um, you know, the, the screens are so good. Uh, it's not going to be long before it's just as, as good as paper, like on your eyes and all that stuff. Um, and, you know, most people are kind of glued to their phones for a big chunk of the day anyway. And so that's 
the attention economy. That's where you've mm -hmm. got to figure out how to tell a story. And I think it's pretty cool. And authors have a great product because it's text, which is easy to put on those uh, devices. And um, that that's kind of the, the future where, where we see it going and, and what we want to be a part of. That's interesting. I never thought of that. I know there's Kindle out there and I've been very averse to all of that because I just love to hold a book and mm -hmm. actually look at pages and, and not uh, any more screen time than we already have, <laughs> um, which I guess a lot of people don't mind that. They're just like, yeah, this, that's my comfort zone. But the one thing just to kind of add to that, that I've noticed personally with a lot of my friends are audiobooks. And yeah. I don't know if you're seeing anecdotally or out there in the universe kind of a change, um, but maybe even podcasting is perhaps what kind of launched this is just everybody when they're in their car, it seems like they'd much rather listen to a book sometimes than actually sit down and read the book. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, technology is a beautiful thing and it's basically given everybody the choice of how you want to you want to consume a story. So you want to read it on your phone, you want to read it on a piece of paper, you want to listen to it in your car or in your headphones, like you can do it all now. And it's super cool time to be a storyteller. Uh, and we, we actually have a site called Audio Thicket that's de dedicated to audiobooks. And so, you know, anybody wants to promote an audiobook, we, we have a property that, that does exactly that. And we didn't, you know, create that by accident. Uh, we did that exactly in response to what you're talking about, which is the rise of audio as a consumption medium. And I think it's, it's a really cool one and, and it presents some opportunities to tell stories differently than, um, than they have been in the past. Um, so, I, you know, I'm a big supporter of, you know, any format for storytelling, even things like video games, I think are cool. So it's, um, it, it's a cool time to be, to be a writer and a storyteller. Yep. Yeah, it's definitely the era of the creatives. And if we could, if you have time here, Farrell, I'd like to go into just our lightning round where we get to know you a little bit better, ask you some kind of rapid fire questions here. I know our yes, listeners sir. really enjoy, you know, getting to learn more about our guests. Um, so you're, you're on board for that for a quick minute? Let's do it. Awesome. So obviously this began as a finance show. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, what would you say is your best investment? Ooh, it's always people. Every time you spend money on hiring the right person, uh, it, it pays off huge, even if you don't see it the next day. And your worst investment? <laughs> uh, worst investment? Um, I would say physical stuff. Every time we've experimented with doing, you know, a book box or something physical, it, it hasn't gone well. So that might be unique to us, but I'd say, you know, the, the future is digital and, and we've learned that the hard way. Okay. And this will be a good one for you. Uh, your favorite book. Oh my gosh. Uh, that's a very difficult question for me. Um, I have a million answers. I'll give you one. The book I grew up with and is just uh, very close to my heart is Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card. Uh, it's a science fiction book uh, about, um, it's a sprawling story, but you know, it centers around a young boy who actually is sent off to war. Okay, great. And uh, do you have a quote that you live by? I do. Uh, it's from my father. Um, so he's, he's no longer with us. But before he left, he had a whole list of rules that he wrote down that for running a business. And uh, one of my favorites, as I'm looking at it right here, is uh, rule 14, uh, which is uh, ego is the cause of all suffering. It comes from Buddhism. And I heard that all the time at the dinner table. And uh, it's, a, it's a business lesson to live by. Huh. Very good. And um, you worked, obviously, previously at Reverb Nation. What was your favorite band? 
or is your favorite band? <laughs> uh, that's a great question. I'm, I'm really into the Black Keys. That's uh, like, uh, you know, sort of a bluesy rock band. And, you know, I do a lot of cooking. You couldn't tell from some of my analogies earlier in the show. And, <laughs> and uh, listening to Black Keys and cooking is one of my favorite things to do. Okay. And uh, do you have a favorite vacation or destination? Partial to the beach. We live in North Carolina, so we are, you know, a short drive from the ocean and uh, nothing quite says relaxation to me like the sound of those waves and the feeling of the sand in your feet. Awesome. Yep. As a Jersey Shore guy, I know what you're talking about. Yep. So, Farrell, this has been awesome. I mean, there's just so much that we've gone over here, a lot of insights to go back and listen to. Um, any parting words that you'd like to leave for our listeners today? Uh, I would just say, you know, if you're out there, if you're thinking about writing a book and you're finding it hard, keep at it. It's worth it. It's hard. The heart is good. Um, if you want to learn more about writing a book, you know, go to our website, writtenwordmedia.com, or you can find me on LinkedIn, linkedin.com slash feral. Um, but, you know, supporting people going through that journey of creating something very difficult is really cool. And uh, a lot of times there can be, you know, some self-doubt and some, some trouble with it. And uh, we'd love to be there to help people when they hit it. Got it. Well said. And so, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Kaderna podcast. Again, I'm your host, Brian Kaderna. And today we had the pleasure of speaking with Farrell Vernon, the co-founder of Written Word Media. We'll see you next time. podcast is for informational purposes only. Individual situations may vary and the information should be relied upon only when coordinated with individual professional advice. Guardian and its subsidiaries do not provide tax, legal, social security, student loan, mortgage, or real estate advice. Listeners should contact their own tax, accounting, or legal advisors or the social security department in this matter. All investments and investment strategies contain risk and may lose value. Brian Kaderna is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, Pass 300 Broadacres Drive, Suite 175, Bloomfield, New Jersey, 07003. Securities, product services, and advisory services are offered through Pass, a registered broker, dealer, and investment advisor. 973 244-4420. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. Pass is an indirect wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Caderna Financial Team and International Planning Alliance, LLC, are not affiliates or subsidiaries of Pass or Guardian. Caderna Financial Team is a division of International Planning Alliance, LLC, a general agency of Guardian. Pass is a member of FINRA, SIPC. California Insurance License Number, OK04194. Content of the Caderna Podcast is copyright of Brian M. Caderna, all rights reserved. Any redistribution or reproduction of part or all of the content in any form is prohibited without prior permission from the Caderna Podcast. The views and opinions expressed herein may not be those of Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, or any of its subsidiaries or affiliates. Guardian does not verify and does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of, of the information or opinions presented herein. Any third-party materials referenced cannot be endorsed or verified by Guardian and are used as the opinion of the author. Guardian, its subsidiaries, or affiliates do not provide or issue or advise for mortgages. This material contains the current opinions of the author, but not necessarily those of Guardian or its subsidiaries, and such opinions are subject to change without notice.